0: Ladies and gentlemen, the moment you've all been waiting for, live from Wild Words Festival. It's Comic Cuts with Kev F. Sutherland.
1: Hello. Comic Cuts. Uh, We're looking at a panel, and we comprise a panel, there's a few of us. So the panel sees a panel, and we talk about the comics from a panel we discuss, and we call it Comic Cuts. That's wonderful. Um, One thing we've never had to do with this podcast before was remember to mic up the audience. So your applause, um, although well-intentioned, won't make the edit. We'll we'll dub on the sound of, I don't know, the London Palladium or some such thing. Uh, but, But keep the applause and, if it happens, laughter coming. And that will be a good thing. Welcome to Comic Cuts, the podcast. I'm Kev F. I write and draw comics, including the Beano and Marvel comics. You probably know me from my graphic novel adaptations of Shakespeare, although the chances are you probably don't. I have with me on the stage here at the Wild Worlds Festival in Hertfordshire... We'll dub in some applause there. I have here with me on the stage two authors who have uh, already exhausted themselves by performing for the last day and a half in front of people. Uh, If they have any energy left, they have brought with them a comic panel which we are going to look at and discuss. On my right, I have creator of Box Trolls, Alan Snow. And uh, to my left, I have an author of romantic fiction who doesn't write under this name, but does have a name. Her name is Jeev Chakra. Chakra. <laughs> Chakura. Jeev Charika. yeah Jeev. Chakura. Chakura.
0: Yeah.
1: Jeev Chakura. That'll edit beautifully. <laughs> what my two guests have each brought is a panel from a comic. We're going to try and identify that panel and talk about it. And anything it inspires, maybe we'll learn something about comics that we didn't already know, or maybe we'll just show off and have a pleasant chat. In half an hour, we'll know how this has panned out. So, uh, Alan, welcome! How do? Uh, Now, you hailed originally from sunny Trowbridge, according to your talk we heard yesterday.
2: uh, uh, South-east London, uh, to Trowbridge uh, at the age of 10, uh, 12 it was, and then... I've been around the West Country ever since.
1: And would I be right in assuming that you are branding the people of
2: Trowbridge as box trolls? Uh, No, I'm branding the politicians of Trowbridge as box trolls. And and it's it's largely a political spoof on the small town politics of Trowbridge. It's sort of Monty Python meets Dickens in Trowbridge. (laughs) So, we have the West Country represented, we also have, I
1: believe, Halifax and Sri Lanka with Jeeve.
0: Yes, okay, yeah, let's do that.
1: (laughs) Now, does your writing draw more on characters from Halifax or characters from Sri Lanka?
0: Probably neither, to be honest, it's just uh, they're made up, so I just make them up out of my head.
1: This is very interesting. (laughs) Do we benefit more from basing our work on stuff we know or really going on flights of fancy?
0: Um, I think both are fine. Uh, Flights of Fancy are really fun. Um, I think you probably can't escape basing things a little bit on what you know because that is in your head. So what you know probably comes out whether you intend to or not.
1: And was Box Trolls satirical intent or it's just stuff you had
2: to get out of your system? Oh, yes. um, When we first moved to Trowbridge the headline of the newspaper locally was pigsy aeroplane <laughs> and there'd been uh, a, a fight between uh, a farmer and his ha- a pig hand and the uh, pig hand had released the pigs that had eaten the farmer's aeroplane and the politics of the place was ever such my parents were left wing and the level of corruption in Trobe, which was very high and uh, was, it was always turning up in private eye in nooks and c- corners and uh, the, the, they would laugh uh, when the local paper came out on a Friday they were always looking for the latest scandal and it was just amazing the gall of what went on and uh, it was just a remarkably Dickensian place it was, it was bent as a nine bob notice, as they say and uh, just entertaining in its awfulness
1: <laughs> <laughs> and uh, gee, romantic fiction then uh, has that... Uh required your extensive education. Did you, for example, study at Oxbridge romantic fiction?
0: No. <laughs> no. Tell us what you studied. I'm a microbiologist, so um, I, did, I did a PhD in microbiology. And then when I needed a pen name, uh, this is about 10 years ago, my publisher said, are you going to use a pen name? So I chose my, my PhD was in a bacterium called Rhodobacter. So I write as Rhoda Baxter, <laughs> <laughs> um, and of late now I write as my myself, which is Jeevanicharika. But yeah, I've got ten books out as Rhoda Baxter.
1: Um, does that bacteria—is it a good bacteria? I mean, because uh, have <laughs> yeah. had, had to choose a bacterium <laughs> about which to base our, upon which to base our career.
0: That's true. It's a very versatile bacterium. Um, it can live where there is oxygen and where there isn't, and. Um, it's a bit stinky, it smells of pond scum. Uh, but it does make some very bright colours when it's yeah. not got oxygen.
1: You really didn't want anybody to research the backstory of <laughs> stinking like pond scum when you were coming up with that name.
0: No, but the uh, biopolymer that you, they used to use for um, biodegradable biograd- bags that come, used to come from Rotobacter, now they can make it. But before, they used to harvest it from there. So, very useful.
1: There you go. You'll never forget that, Vic. Rhodobacter. <laughs> Baxter,
0: yeah.
1: Rhodobacter. Oh, Rhodobacter is the... the That's entire, my name. R- is the, the name you write under, Yeah. and it's r- the bacterium no, is it's called... Oh, it's r-
0: Rhodobacter. A red Rhod- bacterium, Rhodobacter.
1: Of course. It does what it says on the tin. It does. Uh, <laughs> and your, your uh, name on the tin uh, became very much sidelined when it came to the Hollywood adaptation of your work. Instead of being Alan Snow's box trolls, it comes something different, doesn't it?
2: Yeah, well, originally the book was called uh, Here Be Monsters, and he, got, and he got renamed as uh, Box Jaws because it was the characters that they were, uh, were central to it. And I think that there have been uh, a number of kids' movies where the characters became so central, they wanted to pin it on that. And uh, besides, no one's really interested in the writer.
0: Oh.
1: Right now, that's that's a very interesting. Are they not? Because you're not just writing, you're an illustrator.
2: Yeah, I write and illustrate. But there, uh, there was a there was even an interview with the art de- head of the art department at the film company. They said this was a blank canvas. We we, we were able to create this world with, and, and you're thinking, you swine!
0: <laughs>
2: <laughs> I've done maps of the town. I've done the drawings of the buildings. I've done the entire character list, and uh, they're creating, it, uh, calling it a blank canvas. So it's a little bit galling, but you've taken the money, so you have to swallow it. So you've
1: you actually had your work taken yeah. away from you. I
2: mean, yes. talking about the character being central, uh, your run
1: of a series of erratic novel books features a central character who, on the cover, is referred to simply as girl.
0: <laughs> <laughs> they're all different girls, actually. Oh, are they yes, all different girls? Yeah. The books are linked in that um, they're a group of friends or they're in some way related to each other, the main characters the girls, the heroines, um, or the heroes. But, yeah, they are, they're all different couples because it's romance. So once they're together, you kind of want to leave them alone. So you go on to a different couple for the next book.
1: That's a couple of times you've thrown away, Jeeve, uh, the word romance in inverted commas. You didn't do the inverted commas with your fingers, as I am doing for the benefit of viewers at home. <laughs> uh, but uh, are you in any way disparaging about how, or, or do you find that people are disparaging about romance, the genre?
0: Oh, people are always disparaging about romance the genre I'm not because I write it I read it I generally love it um, yeah people, I mean, people
1: quite often refer to it as chick lit or is there a difference
0: <laughs> depends who you ask um, chick lit if you ask an American is about a romance which is not strictly focusing on the romance it's also or it's focusing on the heroine's journey to growing up or finding agency or something like that so it's what we consider to be romance here is lit in america, but um but yeah the in the u k romance is is much more about uh, the heroine's journey and becoming more herself than just about the relationship
1: well yeah, you because you sell in uh, Britain and Europe and you sell in America what's yeah. the feedback like between the two audiences <laughs>
0: uh different, very different. Um, no way. I think Americans like their romance to be hotter," uh, she says, <laughs> eyeing all the children running around. Um, yeah, so, so they like, like people to fall in love quickly and hot. Um, I think we can say spicy in
1: front of children because frankly, spicy. that's just curry. We're just talking about curry <laughs> right now.
0: Yeah, U- UK novels are often less spicy, but you can write um, if you write romantic fiction or read it, you can read across the spectrum from from my very very chaste. To very, very hot and spicy, and anything in between.
1: And Alan, your work has ended up in the publishing realm, but you've worked in pretty well every other medium
2: in between times. A fair number. Uh, I've even handmade paper. So, uh, no, I've done... I worked in recording studios in the early 80s. I've worked in film and advertising. I, I did commercials at Ardman. I've done... Uh, um, I don't know, uh, a lot of different things. I, I, worked, I, I taught myself to animate, uh, first by hand and then in uh, on computer, but very early on, I ended up talking for Apple internationally about how to animate on computers, and... Uh, it's been an interesting time. I mean, herding
0: it, as well. That's oh, yeah, she's hurting. Cheese cheese, cheese
2: okay, she's hurting. So what happened was, one of the things that happened was I got involved in designing computer games, and I was commissioned by uh, a guy who uh, went on to do Grand Theft Auto. But at the state we were doing development work, and we were writing artificial intelligence to, to put it into computer games. And the idea was that we were trying to avoid... Direct combat and to write software that avoids direct combat is multiples of difficulty more and we built cheeses which we put intelligence into to experiment with because they were just simple forms a simple sphere with a or a simple cylinder with legs and uh we would chase them around inside the computer around the networks and uh They develop characters as we raise their intelligence.
1: (laughs) Now, Jeeve, before you and I just provide feed lines for Alan to talk about his mobile cheese, I think it's probably about time we got on to the subject at hand, which is comic cuts. I'm from the comic world. These two guys aren't from the comic book world. But each has brought with them a comic panel. And Jeeve, we are going to begin by looking at the panel you've bought. I'm going to ask Mike, the technician, to make it so. Picture number...
0: Oh, oh. Yes.
1: ignore that one that just flipped up. OK, for the benefit of the listener at home, who will be able to find this on the website, uh, kevfcomicartist.com uh, or on Twitter, uh, or indeed uh, on the holding image of your podcast, we are looking at an image which Alan is now about to try and describe. Um... Uh without guessing where it's from, which you might be able to do, but try and describe it for anyone who can't see it. Four Barbie-like
2: characters playing musical instruments. Sort of a glam girl band. Very bright. A lot of pink. Not manga, but slightly influenced by it. Not my area. <laughs> <laughs> For the benefit of the panelologists
1: at home, people who study comic art, line and all, I would say we're looking at a line drawing, maybe having been done on pen with pen and paper, or maybe having been drawn on the screen. We're looking at something I think from the 21st century, coloured on computer. It is bright, it is vibrant, and it is, as Alan has said, overwhelmingly pink. We are looking at a girl band a four-piece, we have a drummer at the back on a riser, we have a blue-haired woman on a blue guitar who is noticeably two feet shorter than the other people, given that we're assuming their human height. If they're not, she's a third of their height. Uh, one woman <laughs> has got her hair... The, the lead singer has got her hair covering her eyes. And uh, our palette is very interesting. Only pink and blues, uh, largely. The people are mostly pink and they have blue eyes. And we have someone playing a keytar Which which would I would have thought would have been in the 1980s, but I think it's more recent than that. Um, Okay, Jeeve, put us out of our misery. Tell us what we're looking at.
0: Okay, so it's a panel from Jim and the Holograms. You and it. Oh! I've never had
1: the opportunity to ask the audience before, and I didn't just do so then. Okay. (laughs) Who in the audience would have been able to identify what we're looking at here? We have two hands in the air. So, you in the audience, you're not mic'd up, so whatever you say, no one will hear. <laughs> but were you familiar with Gem and the Holograms from what? For a comic? I watched it
0: as a, as a kid in the eight, like, late 1980s. Yeah, American Yeah, yeah. So
1: TV animation like in the 80s.
0: Is that when this comic's from? Yeah, so they, they had a companion comic series, and uh, you could buy uh, cassette tapes and dolls. I have a cassette tape. <laughs>
1: <laughs> so, tell us more about Jem and the Holograms. What um, is their USP?
0: Well, uh, so, this there's, is there's, there's an orphanage, and uh, there are these two sisters.
1: Wait, wait, wait we glossed gl- 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 over the orphanage there's part of it, Swift.
0: Which somehow is run by Jem, who's actually, in real life, Jessica. Uh, Jerrica, sorry. And she's got these magic earrings that her dad left her, and um, when she taps them hologram called Synergy appears and she turns into Jem who is a rock star Um, and there is a a rival band called the Misfits and they're bad they're also rock stars Um, so it is that as mad as that yeah
1: that's fascinating. <laughs> I, now, I knew the name Gem and the Holograms because of my age. It wasn't a kid's programme that I saw when I was a kid, and so one that I never watched. But those components are really reminiscent of the stuff that was in girls' comics when I was a child. Things like Bunty and June and Schoolfriend and Tammy would regularly have strips featuring orphanages. Orphanages, yeah. Featuring rival groups like that. The characteristics that were not so heavily featured in their boys' equivalent, I... I don't know if there were boys' comic strips set in orphanages. Can anybody remember one? It wasn't a thing. Okay, do girls ever think about orphanages?
0: I don't know, probably. We probably all wanted to be the little princess.
1: The little princess.
0: Yeah. yeah.
1: <laughs> so is it aspirational? Is it
0: is the band is the band a dream?
1: Is the band an escape from the orphanage? Um
0: well in in the story world it is it is real and they, they use the Profits they make from their music to fund the orphanage,
1: like Cliff Richard in Expresso <laughs> Bongo.
0: <laughs> Possibly, like yeah.
1: Judy Garland and Mickey Rooney <laughs> doing the show right here in the barn. That's what Gem and the Holograms are.
0: Yes, well, it was. Yeah, it was revived again fairly recently. They did a film, which I know is on Netflix sometimes.
1: Live action film. Live
0: action film. Yeah, a young adult thing, um, which. A certain niche audience was very excited about.
1: (laughs) Well, now, the comic adaptation would be a fascinating thing to see because to what extent did music play a part?
0: Um, I'm trying to remember if you got the cassette tapes when you bought the comic or not.
1: For younger listeners, cassette tapes (laughs) were a medium by which we listened to music and then had to turn it over or rewind and fast forward and sometimes put a biro in. (laughs)
0: Yes. So, uh, and then you
1: could throw it into a hedge when it didn't <laughs> work
0: properly. <laughs> when uh, I grew up in Colombo, in, in Sri Lanka, so yeah, I was born here, moved around all over the place, but significant amount of time spent in Colombo. And uh, when I got my pocket money, I would be taken to this bookshop, which is sadly no longer there. It's called KVG Silvers, and it was one of three bookshops that was in Sri Lanka, and it had uh, it had the more random things in it. and. Jim and the Holograms comics was one of those things, and I think they cost probably the whole 200 rupees, sorry, the whole 200 rupees that I got for my my, um, pocket money. So that's how I got into it. And I had kind of forgotten about them, uh, but when I was writing A Convenient Marriage, um, that's a story about a gay man and a straight woman who get married. And because I'm not a gay man, um, I sent the book to be read by somebody who was, and he said, oh, this character, he needs, you need to give him something that's his, you know, uh, mermaids or music or something. So I gave him Gem and the Holograms, <laughs> which meant I had to Google them <laughs> and I had loads of fun. <laughs> but it turned out um, that a lot of drag queens really liked Gem and the Holograms because they had the most amazing outfits. Um, so, there you go.
1: Well, I mean, this is a great thing. It, although they didn't start off as a comic strip, they have a lot of the strength that the great comic strips have because it's visually yeah. orientated. Yeah. Um, for a long time, comic books have... Somebody answer that. As for a long time, comic books have been like the cheap research and development wing of the, the film industry and TV industry. And Now, of course, that's paying off with Marvel movies. And um, those of us who have friends who have been in the comic business for the last 30 years, most people have their stuff optioned uh, to become... Uh Amazon Prime series and become Netflix. I don't. Frustrating. Yet. Uh, Yet, Yet. of course. But it's because the visuals are there and so, so much of your selling has been done. Because if you're trying to take something from a work of fiction and then someone has to conjure up the images, they can get it wrong. And so they can misrepresent the work or, you know, what they're selling is not the cool thing. Whereas with the comic books, the visuals are there. That's what you need to sell. That's what
2: you did, actually, Alan, with... Yeah, yeah. Well, the the I came out of Aardman. Uh, I, I, I did about four or five years there internally. And it was almost impossible to get a film made. Uh, you could make very small things. But to actually get a, an actual film made was kind of like... you pitch it. No one liked to say no, but no one had the power to say yes to anything because of the money involved in it. So after... Uh, so a number of things happened. I, w- I left Ardman and I thought I'm just going to try and write a book, and I'm just going to try and write a book and put everything I want as a book, or would have wanted as a child in a book. And this involved a lot of imagery. And in the main, uh, the book, the first book of Paper Monsters, there's 700 drawings, and I wanted to put in drawings of, of cross sections. I wanted to put maps like in uh, Treasure Island, all the different elements that. I found it intriguing as a kid even footnotes and everything like that and in a way because I think I'm probably more visual I am verbal it was creating this world now there's an argument uh, about leaving things to words where people can use their imagination But and sort of people used to say radio has the best pictures <laughs> but there's also uh, some people don't have the radio, maybe. You know, they, they, don't, they don't have this ability to conjure up. And if you actually do go out on a chase uh, and chase down kind of imaginings of your own mm. and and you have the ability or some ability to, to p- portray them on paper, it allows people, I think, the space and the world to move around in. And it, it allows them to follow the story rather than trying to imagine the things. Well, also, when you're selling to international markets... If you're there,
1: if the visuals are the strength, then replacing the words is well easier than having to replace the visuals.
2: Yeah, yeah. I mean, you said the the, the book did very, very well in France. It did better than here. And uh, I put it down to the quality of the translation, which was creative. Um, It was... uh, uh, But it was... I think that the whole book was... Uh, picked up because it was so visual. And um, I'd wondered why no one had done this before, but it took me two years to come to the answer. It was because there was so much work involved. <laughs> you know, it was, it was a massively involved piece of work. And I contracted for three books, two and a half got done, and uh, the film got made and things like that. But it's it tailed off by the time I'd practically finished the, the third book. And um, it, it It was a difficult, long journey and an interesting way of going about it. But it produced something that, in the end, I would have wanted as a kid. Interestingly, Gem and the Holograms must date
1: back to the days of cell animation. Those would be drawings rather than computer animation. Computer animation can allow an awful lot more of line drawing style animation to be done faster. Then... um, the animation usually was a bit ropey. What was the quality of Gem and the holograms animation? Rough. Eh, rough. In yep. the audience, we have heads bobbing from side to side. In the universal, meh. Um.
0: When you look at it on YouTube now, yeah, not great.
1: But one of the big strengths uh, that we see from the image we're looking at is a thing that happens a lot in comics, happens in animation too. If you're doing it in a line drawing, the rules of uh, science and gravity <laughs> yeah. don't have to be obeyed. I mean, people can have s- shaped heads shaped like plectrums. That goes without saying. They can also do things with their hair that you can see why drag queens would pick up on this. Because if you could achieve impossibly high hair <laughs> like that, you would be winning. Um, other parts of the body seem to defy gravity in similar ways.
0: <laughs> mm-hmm.
1: And they're echoing a thing very, very popular in the superhero comics, which we have, I have grown up in and we've all become familiar with, and that is that clothes have no wrinkles and are entirely skin-tight, as if those clothes have been spray-painted on a perfect body. Um, again, I don't know, imagine, can't imagine what happens when that is made into real life.
0: Yeah, they, they made it very much as a, a, aimed at a younger audience. All right. And they made it, and so they... Uh...
1: Did they CGI the hair?
0: Um, they spray on the clothes? I mean, no, they didn't spray on the clothes. They, they, I think they just had very elaborate wigs.
1: Because that happens a lot when we make things from uh, superhero comics into real life that you realise they'll be ridiculous if you... well. Asterix books, a perfect example. Okay. Those have been made into films. And yeah. if you were to retain the ponytails, the ridiculous ginger moustaches, uh, the stripy trousers and the uh, silly helmets with, with wings on, helmet, you would yeah. have the Gerard Depardieu films. They're awful. <laughs> well, we have been looking at Gem and the Holograms, the comic strip adaptation of the 80s animated TV series brought in by Jeeve. I think the time has come for us to look at what Alan has brought. Mike, can you do the honours? Oh, OK. For the benefit of the viewer at home, we are looking at an image that um, to many people will defy description. Let's hope it doesn't <laughs> defy Jeeve, because, uh, Jeeve, you're going to describe it to the viewers who can't uh, see it. Thank you.
0: Um, they're sort of underwater people. Not quite people because they've got legs. Um... It's uh it's a colour image. The it's got sea people, sort of seahorse people, maybe. One's got a tail like a seahorse. Uh they're all pink. There's a family, there's a there's a a dad and a mum and two kids by the looks of it. And they are sitting amongst uh starfish and seashells and anemones, and there is a castle in the background and there's bubbles rising, which is how you know they're underwater. As
1: they say, if you know, you know. And there will be a lot of people who are listening to this description of underwater people and immediately visualising this image, because this was a popular image. That is to say, this image was seen in many, many comics for many, many years. Mostly, I think, from the end of the 1960s to the middle of the 1970s. Uh, for the panologists at home who study line art and such things, it is a style of art that crosses over between Madison Avenue advertising illustration and comic strip design from the DC and Marvel-type comics of the 1970s, which is where it would have appeared. These people are disturbingly pink. They <laughs> have the spines and tails of... Seahorses. Seahorses, thank you. But the body and legs of, I would say, Dick Van Tyke and Mary Tyler Moore... Mary Tyler Moore has an orange ribbon in her hair, only she doesn't have hair. She has small three-pronged antennae with little red balls on the end. The more you look, the more disturbing it becomes. He has scale on his chest, but in the same way as one would have hair on their chest. And then you look and the female also has hairy scales on her non-chest. It is... Starting to make me feel worse the more I look. I know where it's from. Alan, would you like to guess where it's from? Oh, no, it's yours. Jeeve, would you like to guess where it's from?
0: I have no idea. I wouldn't know where to start.
1: (laughs) Okay, audience, Uh, does anybody know where this image comes from? Front row. Sea monkeys. Yeah. Sea monkeys. S-E-A, monkeys. Hands up in the audience who is familiar with sea monkeys. Just two of you. The rest of you have never seen this image before. Am I right? Okay, Alan, do you want to tell us more?
2: because there was five kids in our family, we had a, an old Bedford van. And come uh, any jumble sale, we'd have to drive around our local area, around Eltham in, in London, and we'd pick up stuff for jumble sales. And you'd go out and you'd put a notice through people's doors. And on one occasion, we went out in the van with our dad and some other cubs in the back of the van. And went to collect some stuff, and there was a pile of American comics. And in the back of these American comics... The thing that I found more interesting than the comics themselves were the advertisements in the back of the comics. And this, Sea Monkeys, was one of the classic ones. Uh, there's this one, uh, the Sea Monkeys. Then there's an extraordinary one that, you, if you look online for and look for children's submarine... Yes. Uh, ...1960s. American comics, you'll find a thing that looks like a a perfect Polaris uh, submarine but when you actually see, if you see a photograph of it, it's actually uh, uh, um, someone's assembled this cardboard box in the back garden which is rather (laughs) disappointing if you were a kid. But it had so many different things in the back of these magazines and and it was like a a world that we did not have. There was uh, BB guns, there was uh, uh, the idea that you could Um, sell so many packs of cards to your school friends and for this you will receive 2,000 toy plastic soldiers. There were all these adverts that offered... X-Ray right. Specs X-ray is Specs. one of the iconic
1: X-ray. adverts from this period. Yeah. The small ads, which were what funded these comics and kept these comics cheap, uh, these uh, Marvel, DC and other uh, regular comics that were published at monthly intervals, they cost 10 cents right from the end of the 1940s right through to the middle of the 1970s. They still cost 10 cents. Inflation only began in the middle of the 70s for these comics and it was because what they would do, rather than put the price up, they would increase the number of... pages of adverts. So, in the early 1960s, if you bought a Spider-Man, Hulk, Batman comic, you would be getting 20, 21 pages of comic strip. By 1974, it was down to 17 pages of comic strip. But the book was still the same length. The rest of it was adverts, like the Sea Monkeys adverts. By the way, has anybody actually ever seen Sea Monkeys? Only on YouTube. (laughs) We bought them. Uh, for a, f- a friend who was doing a comedy show, uh, thought it would be fun to drink the sea monkeys live on stage. And so what you get is a powdered, dried life form. There's some sort of brine, creature, brine shrimps. brine shrimps, and you could dehydrate them. But when rehydrated, they would be alive and they would wriggle about. They looked for all the world like moving dust, which, unless backlit, remained invisible, remained only a legend. They did not look like Dick Van Dyke or Mary Tyler Moore. They did, have, did not have smaller brine shrimps, all bereft of genitalia. I say, in the, I say bereft of genitalia.
0: Yeah, strategically placed tails.
1: We've got Austin Powers going down with that, t- that tail, haven't we? It's like... Then this must have gone, because this went through advertising. This didn't go through comics publishing. So this has gone through committee after committee. (laughs) And at some point, somebody has said, yet we're all still imagining a willy. (laughs) Not on the little kids. little kids, we've got to let them get away with it. Hello, little kids who are walking around us hearing us talk about this. Uh, But we're going to have to put the tail in. What about her? She can can put a leg up, but he needs a tail. (laughs) That is... It is a fascinating <laughs> glimpse of an unimaginable time, because of course you couldn't get photographs in the adverts. Not that there would have been a lot of photographing. I mean, there were some
2: black and whites.
1: There were Charles there were, Atlas. Charles Atlas was a very bad photo, wasn't it? But Yeah, Yeah. because the reproduction was so poor, which is why there were line drawings, which is why you could get away with the drawing of the own-your-own-nuclear sub, with a drawing of little kids (laughs) standing beside this sub, which bore no resemblance to... I think when you got the thing, it probably had a drawing on the side, and so you had actually got what you'd seen, but not what you imagined you'd seen.
2: No, no, no. It was this imagined world of these adverts being almost parallel with the, with the superheroes. You you know, like suddenly yeah, a submarine that you might be able to put in a pond or something and actually work. And like guns, you didn't get guns here. I mean, you got toy guns, but you didn't get BB guns and all these things that you heard about in American so TV sitcoms and things like that. So all this stuff seemed very, very magical, particularly in sort of Southeast London in 1963. Or there, there was a spot gun given away in the Dandy and the Beano. Um, was it a metal
1: one? No, it'd be a plastic thing, which was basically an elastic band flinger. But, yeah, there was a weapon given away in the dandy and the vino, more than once, um,
2: the spud gun. Nobody else remember the spud I gun? I remember yeah. spud guns, but I remember them being metal, and you'd be sticking them in a the potato and cracking them off and then firing it out. But you also had a, a tiny little plastic cap that you could put on the end so you could squirt water with it if you wanted to, and put caps in the back.
1: Yeah. But It is a big question. Do we feel subsequent generations are missing out by not being lied to, but also <laughs> being offered such dreams?
0: Yes, probably, you know?
1: Is there, is there an equivalent now? I mean, I only recently learned how Love Island operates
0: <laughs> in <laughs> its uh,
1: symbiotic relationship with fast fashion. Was everybody else aware of this? The people on Love Island... Sorry, my are we aware of Love Island? It is a televisual entertainment (laughs) where some people live on an island, uh, attempt to cop off with each other, but they wear clothes that they are supplied with and obliged to change a number of times every day. And when watching this on a smart TV or uh, connecting with your phone and Instagram, you can buy the clothes that you see there. And it is a big deal to then wear those clothes immediately. These are clothes so cheap that they have included the £1 bra, uh, clothes which no charity shop will take because they're self-destructing clothes. Um, But this is fast fashion, and that's uh, how Love Island works. Wow. It is, to a great extent, the sea monkeys of its day... <laughs> the, the nearest equivalent I can think of, because you're being yeah. you're being offered something, throwaway, ultimately useless, um, but it ties in with your popular entertainment. Yeah, it's it's all
2: about dreams.
0: Yes, yeah. If I buy this piece of clothing I will look like that temporarily. Or at all. And I will yeah. have
2: performing monkeys in my aquarium. What, yeah. was, what was going through the mind of the child who sent off for the sea monkeys? Oh, uh, aspiration. I mean, I did. And I never got anything back. Oh, I mean, right. I, oh. I actually paid for a, enough stamp. I went to the post office to find out how much you had to put on a letter to, to send it. And then I actually think, um, I can't remember how much money it was, but I think I, I knew somebody who had some American coins. And it wasn't very much. It's like a dollar. And I think I put the I sellotaped enough coins. Sellotaping coins to a uh, a
1: card in a self-addressed envelope. Well, well, not including exception.
2: Yeah, I think that was that was my downfall. I didn't put a self-addressed envelope in.
0: They couldn't have sent you your sea monkeys.
2: I didn't get them. I didn't get them. I mean, they may have arrived since, but (laughs) there's
1: no evidence of it. (laughs) On the top ten list of things that one generation will have. Great difficulty explaining to the next. Somewhere between dial telephones and the cassette recorder is the self-addressed envelope and the necessity of attaching coins with sellotape to a card. (laughs) Magnificent. Well, we have just been looking at the Sea Monkey advertisement artist unknown unless you at home know better and previously we had been looking at gem and the holograms the spin off comic if you'd like to see more of this sort of nonsense then find comic cuts the panel show wherever you get your podcasts from and if you want to hear more from our contributors today jeeve where do we find you
0: uh you can find me on twitter at rhoda baxter or uh, on my website, rudderbaxter.com, or jeevanicharika.com.
1: And Alan, where do we find you?
2: Oh, occasionally on Amazon. (laughs) (laughs) Occasionally on Amazon. I I don't really do social media as much at the moment, uh, but I will have to correct this. And what
1: are we looking out for from both of you next, Jeev?
0: Uh, my book, Playing for Love, is out in paperback, audio, and ebook uh, now. And uh, book two is coming out in October. We don't have a title for it yet.
2: Are these as Rhoda Baxter?
0: These are as Jeevanicharika.
2: And Alan? Um, a autobiography for children called Bad Child. Um, oh, it's a great title. <laughs> uh, it's uh, about my repute youth with certain things censored out because it was quite bad. <laughs> 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 but it, it invo- involves me and uh, brothers and sisters going wild in the country in London as kids. And it invo- involves uh, building hot air balloons, accidentally burning down a Dutch barn, um, a number of food poisoning incidents, exploding bottles, some work with explosives, the police, and a number of other things. But yeah, bad child. <laughs> I would like to
1: hear it for both of my guests and also for Emma Byrne and everybody here at the Wild Worlds Festival. Let's hear it from you, the audience. <clears throat> and chiefly yourself. Thank you. Andrew. Thank you Andrew. <laughs>